0: This is the Roaring Elven Podcast, and today I am joined by my uh, King of the Lost Boys, Dave. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to make a memory joke, and then I was
1: going to be able to say, Oh, my, mem- my memory is backed up on tape somewhere. No, <laughs> this
0: is just because you called me Tinkerbell before I started recording. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I did indeed.
0: <laughs> uh, how are you doing, Jan? Uh, I'm fine, I'm happy, just had a interview with a guest which will be leading to the moment. I totally forgot who it was already, but uh, i got a feeling the interviewee will help me with that. <laughs>
1: uh, those memory problems, you've probably got some corruption issues, we probably need to uh, um, turn you off and back on again, maybe swap some of your
0: uh, your DIMs around. Yeah, get some of the old craft out, bit, the bit rot, brain rot, yeah. <laughs> <cool>. <laughs> Anyway, looking at, this is not going anywhere anyway, unless you have anything to say before we jump into the interview. No, thanks for the memories, maybe. <laughs> That's for after the interview. Now first, okay. let's switch over to John, who's going to talk about in-memory computing with us. So,
1: we're here today with John Desjardins from Hazelcast. Welcome, John, to the podcast.
2: Thanks, I'm excited to be here.
0: Hi, John. Welcome.
2: Hello.
1: So as the eagle-eyed amongst us that are at least viewing on YouTube can see, the title of the podcast is In-Memory Computing. But before we dive too fast into that, John, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure, thanks. Uh, So I'm currently Chief Technology Officer at Hazelcast. And uh, so Hazelcast is an in-memory computing platform. Prior to Hazelcast, I worked at Cloudera for a number of years, uh, and uh, previous companies have been Software AG and Web Methods. Um, uh, so, Web Methods was the first startup that I was at um, and uh, went public and then got acquired into Software AG. All of these technologies I've worked with over the years have been uh, very performance oriented. Uh, focused on distributed and scalable applications so that's kind of been my thing for quite a long time and uh, also kind of data intensive applications. Um, What got me excited about Hazelcast was the fact that they can solve high performance computing problems in a very scalable distributed way uh, but with a very simple easy to manage architecture. and. so, yeah, that's what gets me excited is being able to do hard things, but to do them and make them easy.
1: Nice. Um, I'm particularly interested in, in kind of the, the part of your journey from, you know, through big data to in memory. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I spent a, a decent chunk of time at sort of Hortonworks and then Cloudera post-merger. Yon also mm-hmm. spent some time at HortonWorks. Um, it it almost feels like, in in some way, the the kind of the world of, of big data is on one side of an equation or a sliding scale, and and in memory is is sort of the other end. Is that is that true? Mm-hmm. Is there a is is that is that mm-hmm. becoming kind of different? What does that journey look like?
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and, and in fact, uh, you know. Coming from Cloudera, you know, I was very used to working with lots of data, and uh, at times trying to provide some near real time insights uh, uh, using Spark, um, in particular. And um, you know, when I saw what Hazelcast could do um, because of the in memory um, architecture, uh, where we could just dramatically reduce the latency, uh, you know, I was kind of blown away. Um, and, you know, the, uh, I guess the journey for me was, um, you know, l- looking for something exciting an exciting new challenge, um, to a lot of different companies, um, as I was looking to move on from Cloudera, including, uh, some kind of ML ops, uh, focus companies, uh, some companies, uh, like Databricks that were focused on kind of big data in the cloud. And, um, uh, really, Hazelcast intrigued me because of the ability to deliver at very high performance. And um, that kind of took me back to some of the work I'd been doing at Software AG with a technology called APAMA. Uh, APAMA was also an in-memory optimized stream processing uh, technology, but uh, it was very difficult to kind of manage and scale and operate. Um, uh, so, you know, one of the things that excited me about Cloud Era was Spark being an inherently distributed, highly available type of architecture um, so that when you're writing and building an application uh, or you know, some you know, code that you want to execute, you don't necessarily need to think about that architecture. I would also say that if we look at the whole world of serverless. Uh, really, that's, that's kind of, you know, another evolution that uh, it really is possible because of kind of, you know, taking a, a memory first sort of approach to how you're architecting things and, and wanting to uh, optimize for, you know, latency and performance. Um, so, you know, the, the application, though, of that, like what problems do you solve, um, uh, you know, are wide ranging um one of the things that you can solve for is an ability to just scale very rapidly Um, so if you think about what kind of websites need to scale very rapidly um, a lot of things like online stores or uh, you know uh, other types of websites that that get peak uh, periods of use that are much higher than their average um, that kind of scale up and ability to handle, you know, uh, spikes in load are, are good examples of, you know, where this technology can be used. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, so if we're looking at this as sort of it, it's focused around a particular set of use cases where, you mm-hmm. know, the data is, let's say more manageable, the speed and the performance is of absolute kind of criticality and the um and and the the sort of requirement it you know it's a business requirement that drives these kind of platforms these kind of requests you know you you mentioned things like credit card processing you know that that has to happen as fast as possible no one wants to get a a decline because the system couldn't respond in time no one wants to sit at the you know card machine waiting for some sort of authentication response when they're trying Uh to pay no one wants to sit watching a a whirling sort of icon on a website while they're they're waiting for their their payment to authorize um Uh what some of those kind of all feel kind of very normal but what are some of the the more kind of esoteric or interesting or different uses of kind of uh-huh. in-memory computing mm-hmm. that you've seen
2: yeah so um you know i mean i guess the bread and butter definitely is these kind of real-time transaction processing use cases uh you know i mean another interesting thing about an online store is that you know every time you're putting something in and out of a shopping cart uh, you know the um, uh, you know, that item should not be available to somebody else to put in their cart. Right. And, uh, so, you know, being able to do real-time calculations of the available to promise, you know, is really critical to ensuring you can fulfill an order, um, and that you can provide accurate information to customers. Um, but if you think about some of the things that, that people are doing right They're they're looking at the data processing Uh, in real time that is related to some user who's interacting. One of the opportunities you have is then to inject more intelligence into that. So, you know, what you could do is actually sort of analyze and inject some machine learning into that. And by running it in a in-memory optimized platform, we could actually make some, you know, intelligence um, in the application so that maybe You know, know, what offers are given to you during your shopping experience can be dynamically modified based on what you're actually looking at and browsing through on a website. Uh, Another interesting example would be, you know, making a chat bot, you know, chat bots need to have the ability to you know, act like they're a real person. You know, the idea of this chat bot is that you start interacting with the chat bot and then at some point you eventually get handed off to a person and you should really never notice the the difference. But that that bot program needs to know if you're a cable company customer, did you already restart your router and your set top box? And did you try A, B and C? Because that's the whole thing the bot is trying to walk you through. Before giving you a person, it used to be what you would call on the phone, right? And, and you, this person would go through this script. They'd be like, "Did you try this? Did you try this?" And you know, if you're technical like like myself, I'd be like, "Before we even get started, these are the things I've done that are in your script.
1: So can we just
2: pick these all off?" So I actually love chatbots because I'm kind of like, "Yes, yes, I can be doing other stuff and multitasking and." And going through what is basically a script of things that the bot, you know, is asking me, but what if the bot knows that you've already restarted your box uh, and restarted the router and uh, You know, you know, maybe even, you know, what, what if the bot knows that, uh, you know, you had several outages and service calls that would have frustrated you recently, and maybe they should just route you right to a person more quickly because you're a high propensity to churn customer. So, well, how, you know, if you can calculate propensity to churn in real time, that's another thing that you can dynamically now change the customer experience.
1: I was just going to say that that something on the uh, you you mentioned about you know transitioning from uh, a bot to a human without necessarily knowing, you know, see, noticing the difference. I wonder if that speaks to the the high quality of the chatbots or the low quality of the 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 customer services folks on the other end that we get sometimes.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. He's yeah.
0: just a
1: chatbot yeah. critic. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, I mean uh... it, it I can definitely see the I can definitely see the the kind of the direction that you're you're talking about though because one of the one of the things that i think we've seen all of this kind of evolve towards is making sure that you know the humans in the equation are kind of doing the things that require a bit of -of out-of-the-box thought and are not spending their time wading through you know giant scripts of you know have you turned it off and on again have you done this have you done that and as i say if the not just if the bots can kind of ask those questions and know that you've done it but i think as you were suggesting like you know have integrations into the operator's system so they can see oh yeah the user did power cycle you know their internet connectivity went down and came back again within the the time frame that looks like a uh, an internet router uh, being rebooted they did you know, it looks like they power cycled their box, you know, five minutes after that. It looks like they, you know, did a factory reset because we got, you know, these credentials. So, you know, I think that that I think that's what you're suggesting here. You know, these things could actually mm-hmm. start to deliver that kind of experience.
2: Yeah, absolutely, so telecommunications companies keep a lot of that uh, information, uh, you know, staged in, in an in-memory uh, layer where, you know, both uh, humans and bots have access uh, at very, you know, instant response to be able to see, you know, what's happened. And, you know, in fact, you know, you don't even have to like look at the network outage situation, like when a when a box or a router restarts, it tells the, you know, it handshakes. And it, so they, they, they know exactly what you started and stopped and and all of that um, in various systems, and if you could bring that data together and make it available to um, all of the people interacting with the customers, and even present it directly to the customer, you know, uh, through the different devices that they're looking at, you know, that that makes for a better experience and a more consistent one because everybody's got the same view of what the customer's uh, current state is, um, and that, that also applies for us, you know, all industries where. You have customers interacting through different channels and um, you know so we see that uh, as, a, as a common thing that um, you know d- many different industries are looking to bring a in-memory optimized single view of a customer of course you've always striv- striven towards this vision of a single view of a customer but having a real-time operational view is very critical uh we also yeah. see this hap- happening in like securities trading right having a, a a single operational view of the trades that uh one portfolio has been doing or or you know a range of different portfolios and and accounts are doing and understanding how that impacts risk um you know so it's applied in in securities trading and risk Uh, You know, uh, another interesting area is, uh, you know, moving the same infrastructure towards uh, edge. Um, I don't mean onto devices, but I mean, you know, being able to have the data available, uh, you know, in distributed places like, or decentralized places like, um, you know, a industrial plant or different parts of a smart city. Latency is super critical. And, you know, the network also introduces a lot of latency. So if you're trying to, you know, control an industrial system, you know, the latency from that industrial system to the cloud, uh, you know, because they're very distributed and often in in areas where there isn't necessarily great mobile infrastructure. Um, So, you know, you have to kind of deploy closer to the edge I expect that with 5G rolling out, that we're gonna see uh, continued growth in demand around IoT and edge because of the, uh, the nature of, you know, 5G allowing lower latency, but at the same time, it also allows more devices and uh, more, more, it allows devices to be designed with lower battery. Consumption as well, and so yeah. you know that's going to open up a whole new range of industrial use cases. And again, it's it's enabled because of a in-memory, low-latency, optimized uh, architecture. Yep,
1: yeah, makes perfect sense. So you mentioned cloud services um, in in there as well. Like how how are the clouds set up? cloud providers set up for this kind of in-memory processing, um, you know, as a, as a platform.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, cloud providers are, uh, you know, because they, they already had to figure out and, and understood that, uh, you know, to scale in the parts of their business that are, uh, you know, if you look at say Amazon and Google and Microsoft, they have their own. Large-scale applications for their end customers who are, you know, using like high volumes of things like, you know, their, you know, social platforms, their, you know, gaming platforms, their, you know, video on-demand types of platforms. So, you know, sometimes retail, they've had to learn how to run things at scale, and then they've brought that to the cloud uh, side of their business and. Um, so they, uh, they, they offer, uh, instance types and, uh, you know, that, that support this kind of, uh, processing and, and have high, high memory density. Um, and you know, the great thing about cloud is that you can, you can scale up instance types. Um, if you have, you know, a need to run hundred gigabytes in your cluster, uh, you know, most of the year, but at a certain time of the year, because of different characteristics, seasonality, or whatever, you may need to run 300 gigabytes or 500 gigabytes. You know, you can scale up.
0: A good question. Is is that still economically viable? Because basically in the cloud, uh, compute is pretty cheap because it can overcommit that. Disk space is kind of hard. That gets expensive if you don't put it on blob storage. Memory is kind of mm-hmm. the, the most expensive part that the public cloud has these days. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. even if you're kind of putting like even a couple of hundred gigabytes to a terabyte in RAM, you will be getting Mm -hmm. those very high expensive uh, VMs in use at that point. And Mm -hmm. on the flip side, where a cloud gives you the advantage of flexibly being able to get the newest, the latest and greatest stuff on board, memory hasn't really evolved that much. CPU has evolved a lot. Disk speeds have evolved Mm -hmm. a lot. Memory hasn't. So is there a real incentive for a person to go to the cloud if they're concentrating on in memory because it kind of mm-hmm. feels like the 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 roi the the cost arguments may be prohibited there Prohibited.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah so uh you know first of all you know you'd be surprised like you know the memory the cost of memory has been steadily going down over time and you know cloud providers um, have you know they do they they do reflect that uh, you know, um, over time. So if memory costs today versus, say, five years ago are, are different, but it it, it does uh, depends a little bit on your use case. Um, you know, if your use case demands in memory, uh, you know, it, it may be justified from a business perspective. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, what the cloud provider has is The ability to scale up and whether you're scaling because you have more data or you're scaling because you have higher throughput, uh, you know, you often need to scale up that infrastructure uh, during busy times and then you may need to scale it back down. And if you are on premise, you're buying your peak infrastructure, you're not buying, uh, you know, your average infrastructure costs.
1: Yeah, yeah no it makes makes perfect sense so where do you see the future of in memory processing going like what what's what's the next big jump i know you mentioned you know optane is is starting to come in and we're we're seeing kind of hybrid systems with you know huge amounts mm-hmm. of of you know dram and huge amounts of of optane in the okay. in the same kind of banks of memory slots together but where's where's this all heading?
2: Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, new technologies that are, are becoming more cost-effective um, uh, that will be coming in the, the, you know, so Optane and other, you know, similar uh, uh, 3D um, technologies, uh, 3D memory technologies are going to be, um, you know more and more cost-effective and more widely available they you will start to see them in the clouds and because they're more cost-effective i think once you start to see them in the clouds the object will will actually be relatively quick uh but you also are seeing um other technologies on the horizon um where like DRAM5 you know used to be just something for Uh, graphics cards and you didn't see it um, as general purpose DIMMs and you know those are those are coming out Uh, so you're starting to see you know faster high bandwidth memory options as well as more cost-effective memory options coming to the market and I expect that will accelerate next year at the same time we're also seeing uh, you know Optane and similar technologies accelerating the performance of SSDs and so um, storage that would be used in these kind of systems is also becoming much faster and um, so um, you know we will see that you know, you will have this hybrid model of an in-memory platform that's a combination of in-memory and also fast storage um, as opposed to, you know, still a big data platform will still be handling so much data that they will not be using the super vast storage in most cases, but uh, before platforms like Hazelcast and others that are on the market, uh, you know, whether they're focused on stream processing or focused on storing uh, data like uh, you know, NoSQL, fast NoSQL data stores, uh, all of them are going to start to Take advantage of the range of options more and more, and you'll start to see, you know, I think a blend of different types of, you know, storage with memory, um, and I think that's going to also allow more more use cases, um, you know, because uh, you know the um, you know the uh, amount of data will be increasing and the cost benefit will will be becoming more attractive, um, you know, so. No, I, uh, all of the vendors that are in our space are, are heading in the same general direction um, in terms of taking advantage of these technologies and how those things are emerging. Intel's, you know, they're partnering with you know all the key vendors in this space and uh, you know some of the other vendors that are starting to introduce products you know, uh, I expect we'll start to work more closely, um, with the ISP. So, you know, like a, a year from now, things will look very different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that seems to be the case for almost every business at the moment, every, everyone's going through a bit of a revolution with one thing and another. I know there's been a, been a few mentions throughout, but just, uh, in the, in the last couple of minutes, um, you know, how about, uh, just give the audience a quick taste. You yeah, know what, what's what's Hazelcast all about? What's the what's the the thing that makes uh, you guys different in the in-memory processing space?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. Thanks. So, you know, I think that all of these in-memory data stores that are in the market today uh, offer, you know, millisecond or sub-millisecond access to data. Um, Uh, we realized some time ago that that created an opportunity to do more computation on the data and one of the things that differentiates us was the fact that we introduced stream processing that was built on top of the data grid so the uh, uh, other stream processing frameworks in the market today when they need to persist state in order to do, do reliable job execution or allow for job restarts and job recovery and other kind of, you know, stateful stream processing. All of that stuff has been architected around, you know, disk based uh, stores. And, you know, we built our stream processing on top of the data grid. And that's the thing that blew me away when I watched, you know, a, a server that was processing in real time Uh, streams of data and then you added a node and that node would just pick up and start processing as well and um, you know yeah you you could kill a node off and again it would continue processing and not miss a beat Um, and so that ability to kind of scale up and scale down um, you know is I think what sets us apart and I think also just the simplicity of it you know uh, a halo class cluster is a a cluster of Java based applications that are all peers, right? So as an operator of a a Hazelcast cluster, I just go, is the cluster up? Are there errors coming from the cluster? Nope, okay. So, um, you know, the simplicity of our platform, uh, you know, makes it easy to adopt and that's the thing that's exciting, Um, you know, uh, and where we're taking that in the future is expanding our polyglot experience, meaning we're expanding our support for different languages and SQL and, and, you know, more and more people will just be able to program for Hazelcast using whatever language they want and um, take advantage of distributed processing. And it could be even replicated across wide area networks and, you know, shared between different regions of the cloud or different data centers. you know, but as a programmer, I don't need to know about all that. So that's kind of what, what, that's what we're all about. And that's, what's exciting to me.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time, John. Really appreciate this uh, interesting journey through in-memory computing and what it's all about. Um, Been fantastic talking with you and hopefully we'll get a chance to chat again soon.
2: Yeah, I look forward to it. Thank you for having me today, and it's been a great conversation and a great, great, uh, great time. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, John. Bye-bye.
1: Well, that's it from John. And I think, unless there's anything else from you?
0: Uh, nope, my memory is full. Uh, I didn't get those upgraded Optane chips in my mind yet, so <laughs> Oomkiller is just waiting to kill me.
1: Yeah, oh, well, there's, there's an upside to everything, I guess. And then, in that case, that is all the time and memory uh, we have for today. You can support this podcast. I know you want to. It's it's in your your very desire, and you become become a Patreon as well. And every contribution really helps us produce this exceptionally high quality content. We're on YouTube. You can like. You can subscribe. You can hit the notification notification bell. You can enter comments do all the youtube things please go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our patreon page and for more information about this podcast you can follow us on twitter using the at roaring elephant tag and finally if you're old school send us an email and drop that to us at podcast at roaringelephant.org. until next time thanks for the memories my name is dave
0: we'll meet again my name is john
1: and we look forward to talking to you next week goodbye see you then